everyone and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today we'll be hearing from Anne Farrell. Anne is an Associate Professor of Folk Studies at Western Kentucky University or WKU, which is where I actually first met her way back in 2010. Then I was embarking on my Master's in Folk Studies and she just joined the faculty Eight short years later, she's now director of WKU's Folk Studies program. She's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of American Folklore, and she's an award-winning author. Um, The book that she's joined us to talk about today, uh, which is called Burley, Kentucky Tobacco in a New Century, won the American Folklore Society's Wayland D. Hand Award. And Beryl, a big welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Rachel. So, Anne, before we get to this wonderful book, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, in particular about how you came to be a folklorist. Okay. Um, Most people come to folklore in a meandering sort of way, um, and and I certainly include myself um, in that category. Um, As an undergraduate student, as I was a women's studies major and became really interested in fairy tales and myths and... um, sort of ways in which gender, in a very simplistic way, um, seemed to be taught to us through narratives, um, traditional narrative. I didn't have a folklorist there um, to guide me, Um, but once I had graduated and was working, I worked for a few years in a shelter for women and children um, experiencing family violence, Um, and somehow in my mind I sort of had a connection that was very vague and again simplistic, but this idea of of gender roles and expectations as being grounded in some ways in tradition. Um, And my um, previous advisor from my undergrad days said to me, as I was talking with her about potential graduate school options, she said, you know, I think there's this discipline called folklore. Um, And so I ended up at, like you, at at Western Kentucky University, um, doing my master's um, beginning in 1997, I believe, um, or eight, no, seven, um, and found that few folklorists were asking the specific questions that I was interested at the time, and yet found that really folklore had an opportunity for those kinds of questions, and of course, many, many others. So that was sort of my meandering, um, Route. I then um, finished my degree here at Western and then worked um, for the state government for a few years and then went on to Ohio State where I received my Ph.D. Um, and then um, was thrilled, as you said, to come back to uh, Western Kentucky University in 2010. Um, and I'm happy to, to still be here. Yeah. It's, and I'm following in your footsteps at least up until coming to OSU. So um, Yes. Thanks for your encouragement, Notley. Um, And just to help orientate listeners who uh, maybe don't have a background in folklore studies, do you have a kind of like a a short way of describing what it is beyond, because we know it's not just fairy tales, even though that is something that it is. Yes, that is is certainly a a, a small piece of a much wider study. Um, So I think, you know, certainly... I think we all as folklorists struggle with what one of my um, former mentors, uh, Larry Danielson, used to say is we needed our taxi cab definition of folklore. And I think we all still struggle with that for lots of reasons that I that I won't um, um, get into now. But I think 
you know, the definitions that I appreciate include, you know, the things that one would expect, the idea of knowledge that we share with one another that's you know, unofficial, that's become traditionalized and so forth. Um, but I think teaching has taught me that the, the questions that really become sort of a, a, a losing game of is this folklore, is this not folklore, um, are really less helpful. Um, certainly we can identify processes and products that we would categorize as folklore, but um, I really try to think about the ways that folklore studies is about the kinds of questions we ask and who, who we ask those questions of. Um, and so getting to the perspectives of groups and individuals, um, particularly groups and individuals who are heard from less in sort of more official spaces. Um, so trying to get to um, the ground level of um, issues that are much more complicated than we may um, sort of hear about at the macro level. And so trying to get sort of an on the ground idea um, from um, people um, about, you know, sort of worldview issues and ways in which they're understanding um, their lives and the role of things like tradition and heritage and so forth. Uh, that's a really great way of putting it. And it's also a great way of uh, leading into your book because we're talking, you're covering people who are not heard from so often, um, uh, tobacco farmers, and you're talking about tradition and heritage and how co much more complex that is than, than may uh, ostensibly appear. So tell us about a little bit about um, your book, Burley, and, and how it came to be. Excellent. Yes, I did try to lead us right to the book. Well, with my... it did very well. <laughs> well thank you. Because <laughs> it does. I mean, I feel like that's, um, that's what I wanted the book to be, at least, um, is something that would tease out um, what tobacco has meant um, to those who, who raise it or have raised it um, beyond the, the many dominant narratives that we're all very familiar with um, about, obviously, the effects of tobacco on our health and, and many other, other narratives that we, we um, are very familiar with. And so in terms of, you said how I came to the book, is that what I'm asking? Yeah, how you came yeah. to the subject, because it's such a, an unusual and I think brilliant subject. Well, I was living, again, in Kentucky in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, um, and it was tobacco was in the news all the time and part of conversations all the time because there had been a number of um, uh, sort of events that are important historically that were happening um, or um, other sorts of changes that were taking place. The 1998 Master Settlement Agreement um, between states and tobacco companies um, was understood to be a, a, a major changing point in the industry. And um, that led to, in 2004, what became known as the tobacco buyout, um, which was the end of the federal tobacco program that had been in place um, since the um, Depression era. So what the, the, ways in, the way in which tobacco um, could be raised and bought and sold um, had been a, a federally regulated um, system. And so that changed in 2004. And so... Not being from Kentucky, um, you know, I had, and I, I'll get to some of my sort of assumptions because that becomes really important, but, um, you know, I was just aware of that this was, there were major shifts happening culturally. And so um, by 2004 and five, I was finishing up 
uh, or I was getting ready to, to begin my dissertation at Ohio State, and it, it, it just made sense that this was a topic that needed to be looked at. Um, and I sort of, you know, in terms of we all have our, our, our narratives, um, I had in about 2000, I believe, which is unbelievable now to think about that that's 18 years ago, um, I was at a conference for women for women involved in agriculture um, as part of my job at the time. And I remember this conversation that I had with a woman um, who had not grown up farming, but she'd married a tobacco farmer. And she was at this conference in order to learn some ideas about what kinds of things they might try uh, to produce on their farm in order to keep the farm. And she talked about um, how for her husband, tobacco farming was, and I don't remember that she used these words, but my, you know, what I sort of came away with is the way in which tobacco was about his identity. Um, and it was about his ties to his family history. Um, and it was about so much more than uh, the crop itself or, um, you know, the, the sort of um, the economic aspects of it. And so thinking about that then a few years later, um, I became really interested in thinking about how that that memory of that conversation uh, suggested a really gendered uh, perspective on, on tobacco that I hadn't heard anyone sort of mention. And so um, I became really interested in thinking about um, sort of, you know, documenting in the moment these changes that I saw that were happening, but also thinking about it in terms of um, tobacco um, really as a, as a crop that's um, very much sort of um, embedded in masculine identity, a particular masculine identity in Kentucky. Right, this tobacco man image and and uh, persona, yes, yes, which is is all the way through the book. It's 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 um, informed by this persona, which is fascinating. Just before we move on and, and talk about some of the assumptions you ca- came to the project with, I want to just um, look at some part of your introduction, which is on the history of tobacco growing. Uh, generally, and then more specifically in Kentucky, and come back to a couple of the terms that you just mentioned. But you, you just mentioned the tobacco buyout, which happened in 2004. Am I right in thinking this is when, amongst other things, government subsidies for um, tobacco farmers ended? Is that right? Um, it's mostly right, yes. the um, There was never actually a subsidy, um, which is... Um, part of a much larger misunderstanding. So that's, that's not exclusively yours, but, um, but yes. So um, the government, the federal government regulated um, how much tobacco you could legally sell. Um, and so there was sort of a, a relationship between the tobacco industry and the government and farmers that each year um, based on uh, a, a quota that you, you basically, when you bought land in Kentucky, it did or did not have a tobacco quota. And so, um, that quota rose and fell each year based on a number of factors, but basically demand. Um, and so, it, it, and with that, sort of in exchange for agreeing to limit your production to that quota, you were then guaranteed a minimum price. So again, each year, the minimum price um, on different grades of tobacco um, was determined. And so you knew when you took your tobacco to be auctioned that you would get no less than whatever that minimum price was, hopefully more. Um, so that was sort of the trade-off, um, a quota, a growing quota in exchange for knowing that you were guaranteed a market and a, and a minimum price. So that's what ended in 04. Right. That's what I, yeah. 
Okay, that's what I got mixed up on. I, I, I even yeah, I, I think of that kind of. It kind of translates into my head as a subsidy, even though you've completely explained that it's not a subsidy. Um, um, and so that was a very important date. But before that, uh, another really important date was 1964, by the looks of things. Yes, absolutely. So in January of 1964, the first Surgeon General's report on the dangers of smoking was released. Obviously, this was not the first clue that anybody had. Um, that had, had begun well, depending on how you think about it, much, much earlier. But um, by when, in 64, when the Surgeon General's report came out, that's really widely seen as a, as a major turning point where um, it became clear um, that, the, that the, the, basically that the industry was in trouble. And so lots of, um, as we know now, lots of laws um, went into place in terms of different types of bans on um, advertising and leading up to, of course, total bans on, on smoking in public places and so forth, as we see today. So, yes, that was sort of a, a tide-changing moment. And, in fact, just really quick, I just love the fact that um, they released the port on the report on a Saturday um, out of fear of what it would do to the stock market. So I think it was, it was, it was a big deal. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, I noted that in your, in, when you, you described it, but this was particularly significant for Kentucky because um, it was uh, Kentucky's uh, top cash crop for quite a while. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of tobacco in uh, Kentucky specifically? Yes, absolutely. So um Without and I will, I will get not very detailed, but um, certainly um, tobacco has historically been and um, the, the big it was the biggest cash crop in Kentucky since European settlers brought it here from um, Virginia, and um, it and sort of again the, the history of of tobacco more widely, different types of tobacco were developed in different regions based on uh, climate and land and so forth. And, um, and then those sort of led to different uses. And again, because of, by the 1930s, the federal tobacco program, those types of tobaccos really, because you had to have a quota to, to, uh, to sell it, um, the different types of tobacco and the cultures that grew around them really became settled in very specific areas. So central Kentucky up to northern Kentucky in particular is the center of the of Burley tobacco production. Um, Burley is grown in some other places, but that was, and other uh, tobaccos are grown in, in Kentucky, particularly western Kentucky. Um, but Burley became settled um, in, in tobacco excuse me, in Burley Tobacco became settled in central Kentucky. And um, to, uh, Kentucky ended up really behind North Carolina as the second biggest tobacco producing state um, and still is the second biggest tobacco producing state. Um, right. Um, and the fact that it's Burley Tobacco as opposed to just any old tobacco is important, isn't it? Yes, and but I would say that um, I've done a little bit of field work, for instance, in Western Kentucky with with um, what's called dark tobacco, um, and so just enough to know that in each region, um, you know, the the type of tobacco grown there has, um, you know, again, um, its unique culture, which is tied up in. Um, both the economy and the, and the culture in ways that are um, related in part to identity. So yes, in I think. Um, I start out at the introduction of the book. I mentioned Martin Henson, who was my 
um, biggest, uh, my main teacher, um, when the first time I interviewed him and I said, we're talking about tobacco, he corrected me and he said, no, burly tobacco. Um, so absolutely, the fact that it's burly um, is, is central. Um, but again, that would be true of other types in other places, or at least it would have been at one time, probably less so today. But. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that you came to it with some assumptions. Um, and I wondered what some of those assumptions were and how they were um, dispelled in the course of your field work. Um, so yes, absolutely. I, um, you know, and, and we, we all come to whatever project we come to with assumptions. And um, I think some of the most important parts of whatever that project is, is realizing those assumptions that were maybe not even totally um, um, sort of obvious to us. And so again, I came to this right as the buyout was happening. Um, and the, what, but I later realized um, I had really sort of assumed from the uh, media rhetorics and so forth was the idea that um, tobacco was about to be gone. And so I came to uh, the documentation of, of um, tobacco, the tobacco at that time with the idea that I would be doing a lot of documenting of the last crop, you know, talking to farmers about how it feels to raise your last crop. Um, what I discovered, of course, is that um, there were farmers who had raised or were raising their last crop, but many, many farmers um, were far from it and were had no intention of leaving tobacco. So that was one huge assumption, this idea of the last crop. The other huge assumption, which I think um, shows my complete um, naivete, is that I really thought I could study tobacco separated from, um, you know, the, the idea that, or the, the very fact that tobacco is a, a cancer-causing uh, product, um, that this that it is um, an industry that is perhaps the most deceptive um, and illness-causing um, in our history at, at that time anyway. Um, and so I really had a very um, naive understanding of uh of the tobacco situation. Um, and so, but I think um, what that really helped me to see ultimately, and I think this is why it's so important to um, reflect on our assumptions, um, is the ways in which I needed to figure out where I got those ideas. You know, where did I get the idea that this was going to be the last crop um, and so forth. And so um, that really led me to understanding. And I think um, in the introduction, I quote from the first interview I did with Robert Taylor um, of Bracken County, Kentucky, who talked about uh, when I asked him a question that I used a lot um, to sort of, can you, can you walk me through the production year? And tobacco um, has a very specific production cycle. It's often referred to as a 13-month crop because you're um, often uh, sell, you know, finishing up and selling your crop at the same time that you're starting the next year's crop. And so I asked him to walk me through, you know, what's that, what's that production cycle like? Um, and he said something like, do you want me to um, tell you about how we do it now or how we did it in the olden days? Um, and that came to, to me to be a, a real framing for um, how I began to understand tobacco production in Kentucky as really being about change um, sort of changes that had happened and were happening, but 
more importantly, the changed meanings of the crop. So within the lifetime of, the, of uh, those from whom I was learning, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, again, the 1964 change. So for older farmers, you know, that was within their lifetimes. Um, and so the changes that, that they had seen happen, um, you know, really were embedded in the way that they talk about and understand. Right, right. And um, so we're going to go on in a minute to the, the book is divided into three parts. And the first part is looking at this 13 month production cycle. But just before we go on, I want to mention something that you you have talked about in your introduction, which is your own initial uh, tendency to romanticize in a way the um, the growing tradition is. I think there's a point at which you're asking a farmer, but are you growing? Will you always just grow a little bit just because it's a tradition? You don't say it quite like that. You sort of and and he's kind of saying no I'm doing it because it pays it makes money <laughs> and that made me laugh because that's what always what my questions are like it's like oh are you doing this because it's part of your heritage you know you're from I'm like I'm researching tango at the moment so I'm, I'm looking at people in America dancing tango and I'm oh are you embracing your Italian heritage via Argentina in in dancing tango it's like no <laughs> no <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's absolutely that's one of those assumptions that I think you know I had from a lot of different sources, right? And so again, um, really important to my research process was understanding where I was getting these ideas. And again, back to that conversation I remembered from 2000 at the Kentucky Women in Agriculture Conference. Um, this woman had told me, you know, very or what I, my memory of it um, is that um, her, you know, and this is this was as I came to learn, this was quite common that there were farmers who had what are called public jobs, meaning off farm jobs, um, but raised tobacco on the side. Um, and what she told me, or again, what I remember her telling me is that, you know, he was going to do that no matter what happened. Like that was, it was so important to him symbolically to continue to do that. Um, and so I, that really framed a lot of how I started out. And then yes, farmers would say, well, I'm not stupid enough to keep raising it if it's not making money, you know? And so, so what I, you know, yeah. And it's, it's amazing when you think back to your assumptions, especially, and I think, you know, folklorists were, were um, a bit sort of in danger of that romanticizing. We, we sort of walk a line um, where we need to, um, you know, be really reflective on, on our assumptions about, tradition and heritage and what those things mean. Um, and so I really came to understand tradition from the perspective of tobacco farmers as being a, a you know, this threaded mix of um, both the economic and the more symbolic. And, you know, they're not fully separable. Um, you know, the, one of the farmers that you, maybe the person you're quoting, um, I think he really stressed that he would not do it if it, if it didn't pay. Um, whereas other, you know, obviously their farmers are on a spectrum. And so those, those economic and those um, other cultural meanings are, are intertwined in a way that it's not a simple process of this is economic and this is cultural. Right. Cause I think actually at the end of the introduction, you, you're, um, you quote, um, I think it's possibly the son of a tobacco farmer who, who's he, he you're asking he's he's asking you to romanticize the crop make it intimate he says or make it clear that there's hands that touch this stuff and there's lives that are dependent on it he says something like that so yeah yeah absolutely so that you know so we can't deny that 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 connection is there right that that is that is part of the tradition I mean we're again we're talking you don't sort of 
decide, um, you know, when you're 18 and you graduate from high school, I think I'll become a tobacco farmer. Um, it's, um, it's very much embedded in family life and family history and so forth. So there is very much that, um, that aspect of it um, that, you know, is, is connected to identity, particularly to male identity, which I could talk about later if you'd like, but, um, but in ways that, um, you know, and, and I think it also actually that I'm glad you drew attention to that quote because putting, um, I think it was probably John Shell, um, in contrast with the, the farmer I was talking about earlier who said he wasn't stupid enough to keep growing it, you know, um, that shows the, the spectrum of perspectives, right? That, that there, this young guy um, very much has a romance, and he was, I believe, 17 or 18 at the time. Um, so there is, is a romance um, to, it, to it for him at that time um, versus uh, Roger Quarles, who, I, who would, was probably in his late 60s at the time. Um, so very different perspectives. And that's, you know, and that I think that that's one of the things as folklorists that um, we continuously and I think importantly offer is um, that, you know, we can't ever, I can't talk about Kentucky tobacco farmers as having one perspective or one voice or one way of seeing the world, right? And that's what um, our long-term fieldwork leads us to is the, the very fact that, you know, I'm going to hear very different things from very different people who from the outside um, appear to be a group, right, that have all of these things in common. Yeah, absolutely. So in we'll move on to part one of the book, um, which is the uh, Burley Tobacco Crop Year Then and Now, and is a look at this 13-month tobacco cycle, as how it's done now and in the past. And in the part that's about how it's done now, you actually, you also had your hand on the tobacco, I, I, I think, you, you, you had your hands touching the stuff in the word of that um, young man who wanted you to talk about that. So tell us about, tell us about, the 13-month tobacco cycle, then and now, and the process of doing it yourself. Okay, I will try and, and, and sum up 13 months in just a few minutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, tobacco is a crop that, um, and, and without getting into all different types and the different production uh, methods for different types of tobacco, but Burley um, continues to be a crop that has a lot of uh, needs for hands-on work. Um, and has very specific stages um, from, um, you know, sowing the seeds, which are sown um, in um, some sort of seed bed and then transplanted to the field. Um, and um, so there are the very specific steps. There are with any crops, but um, the, the way that tobacco is talked about and, and really the, um, the steps that are involved are very particular to tobacco. And so the first third roughly of the book, um, I go through that 13-month cycle um, as I learned about it from farmers. Um, I will say that when I was uh, writing, I guess it was the dissertation version, um, a, a, a now, good friend of mine who is a, 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 um, a tobacco extension agent read through it and pointed out all the things that farmers told me that weren't quite right, um, and which I think uh, really points to um, our work as folklorists and my interest in um, getting across what farmers told me, not as, um, not as always fact, but as this is how farmers understand it. Um, oh, can you give me an example of that? Um, yes. 
Um, let me think about that and come back to it. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 no. Didn't mean to no, no, not at all. Um, but yes, there are a number of, I'm trying to think, cause there's one example that, um, he was really adamant about. So I'll, I'll be thinking about that as I, as I talk, but, um, so the first part of the book really takes us through, um, those 13 months and through what farmers taught me, um, which again, goes back to this idea that, um, it's there, the way that it's talked about is really sort of focused on change and how changes have been made. And so, um, as I started to say that, um, that, that the plants are started, um, in, I started to say they were, they're started in seed beds. Um, but now today they're actually started in floating styrofoam trays. And so, you know, farmers talked, talk about each, step of the the growing season um, and the growing um, in terms of how they were and how, you know, how it was done and how it is done today. Um, And so I try to present again, this, this, um, this 13 month cycle as it was taught to me um, by the farmers. I love the way that you talk about um, some of the things that happen in the course of this, for example, this, when the, when the tobacco is growing, there's this kind of, I think one um, farmer describes the family ritual of having to come out and look at it and go, "Ooh, oh, that's wonderful!" <laughs> yes, yes, and and the photographs. There's there's a, a tradition of taking photographs, family pictures in front of the tobacco at various stages of growth. You know, and, and you know, tr- so you can track through family pictures um, how tall the tobacco was at this time of year in this particular year, and you know when it was a good tobacco year based on. Um, not just how tall it was, but all different aspects of how it looks and so forth. So yes, absolutely. The, um, that, that, um, that way in which, and again, um, you know, sort of one of those things that I learned that did certainly need to be questioned and yet is important, um, for tobacco farming families is the, the stress on, uh, the, the importance of family labor, um, and, you know, and again, that varies much more widely from family to family and, and region to region and, you know, size of your farm and so forth, how much was family labor and how much was hired labor and so forth. Um, but it was um, this idea of the 13 month crop also um, really um, demonstrates the way in which tobacco is embedded in family life throughout um, that 13 month cycle. Another thing that's emphasized is this, uh, the pride taken in producing a good hand of tobacco. Can you tell me a little bit about, about this? What is a hand of tobacco? Yes. So sort of toward the end of the um, tobacco production cycle um, in those last couple of months um, after tobacco has been. So just really quickly, you know, again, we've got the, the, the um, starting of the seeds, the transplanting of those seeds to the um, to the field and then various stages of upkeep of, of the crop throughout. Um, and then finally, uh, well, a topping it, which is breaking out by hand the flower of each plant um, and then eventually um, cutting it, um, letting it sit on tobacco sticks in the field to, to begin to cure. And then after about three days being hung in the barn, um, again, all of this still today um, is um, almost exclusively mm. done by hand. Um, and so once it's then cured in the barn for a number of weeks, depending on all kinds of weather conditions, um, 
it is, you know, taken down from the barn, brought into what's called a stripping room um, where the, the leaves are stripped from the stalk. And so um, up until the early 1980s, the custom ha- was and had been um, that um, as leaves were stripped from the stalk, um, you held, held them in your hand. Um, and then there was a special leaf that was used called a tie leaf that was tied around the, the stems of that stalk. Um, and so the idea of, of um, tying a pretty hand of tobacco um, and pretty is, is the most common adjective used um, to, to describe a good hand of tobacco. Um, so that was um, a, a huge source of pride is that, um, and, and one of the things, again, I talk about is that sort of confluence of the economic reasons for that, as well as um, the more um, sort of symbolic um, meanings of a pretty hand of tobacco. You know, the prettier it was according to, and this changed depending on the needs of the tobacco companies and what, what you know, pretty really also reflected um, the coloring of the tobacco and so forth, which also then reflected what the, the current demands from the companies were. Um, so there's this confluence of, um, you know, th- that pretty hand reflecting what the market wanted right. at the time. Um, but, but also the skill in tying it and in, in tying it um, in this, which it doesn't sound difficult, but I've done it. It's quite difficult. Um, so the hand of tobacco, again, um, it was the early 1980s when to, uh, burly tobacco moved from being hand tied into being um, basically packed into a, a, a baler and, and baled um, into small bales that weighed 75 to 100 pounds. Um, and but the the hand of tobacco, you know, remained and remains um, of symbolic importance in terms of because on a number of occasions when I was stripping tobacco, which is the process of taking it off the stalk, um, farmers would would you know tie a hand and I think I talk about in the book probably Martin Henson, um, you know, before I so I'm stripping tobacco with him and I turn around and he says here's here's a hand I tied for you, you take that home, you know um, the hand of tobacco continued to have a, a really important symbolic uh, function. It's like giving you a bun- bunch of flowers or something. Yes. yes. <laughs> and actually, one of the things I noticed from living in Kentucky those two years that I was at um, Western is that it is a beautiful crop. I mean, the way it, it looks so dramatic when it's hanging in the specially designed barns and beautiful leaves when it's on the, still in the field. It's lovely looking. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, and so, yes, I mean, you know, we're folklorists, right? So we know that there are all kinds of aesthetic dimensions um, to work, right? To um, all aspects of life. There are ways in which, um, you know, we, um, part of what we're interested in in as folklorists is understanding what those aesthetic dimensions mean, right? So a pretty crop of tobacco and the use of the word pretty, um, particularly, again, aligning with a crop um, that is so tied up with male identity, um, you know, was, is a, fascinating topic that I could talk about for hours, but I'll. (laughs) (laughs) So just before we move on to the second section, I just want to come back to that um, agent who was, who was saying, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. Was was one of the things he was concerned about the weight of the tobacco that farmers were saying it weighed so much and he was saying, no, it weighs so much or some, I'm feeling like I remember that from somewhere or am I deluding myself? No, you're absolutely right. And I think um, 
it, it would, yeah, it, it was dispute over how much a bale um, really weighed and the, the idea that tobacco, that farmers always overestimated the weight, um, which I think, and I don't remember now um, how much I said about this in the book, but um, certainly um, that suggests, you know, the symbolic weight to um, to farmers is tied up in, in the, you know, the, the actual uh, calculable weight of tobacco. Um, so, yes, there, those kinds of discrepancies are the things that um, that he was interested in. And I think I added a few footnotes, you know, to <laughs> to, to explain for him. Um. Right. Right. <laughs> so in part two, um, you're talking about the shifting meanings of, of tobacco. And here you move away from the direct field work into this archival research and this uh, analysis of the rhetoric that you find in archival research. And I think your interest in all of this came about during a visit to the Kentucky Department of Agriculture in 2007. Is that right? When you saw something was not represented. Tell me what happened. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So um, I was at the offices of the the Kentucky Department of Agriculture and actually not directly related to my research, although that it was in process, it was beginning at the time or in process at the time. But um, th- there was this beautiful wall of photographs of Kentucky agricultural products, including, and I more recently have written a little bit about this, including a bottle of bourbon. Um, but there was no tobacco there. And I just was so struck um, by the fact that, um, that, you know, I'm spending my days with farmers um, for whom you know, who live here in Kentucky and for whom this is their most important crop. Um, and there was no image of tobacco in the Kentucky Department of Agriculture in this beautiful wall of photographs. And so um, I became really interested in understanding um, when that had changed or had it changed or, you know, sort of how, how is it that the Department of Agriculture is not um, sort of, vis- you know, showing this visual connection to uh, the importance of, of tobacco in Kentucky. And so I ended up um, spending um, all kinds of rainy days and other down days during my fieldwork in um, the Kentucky Department of Libraries and Archives, going through um, the uh, Kentucky Department of Agriculture newsletters, beginning when it started in the 1940s, um, up through, and it was monthly and then quarterly until, I believe, the 1980s, but going through all of the the newsletters and trying to understand you know, how tobacco uh, was understood there. And so the second part of the book is really, um, really focused in on specifically the newsletters as the rhetorical site that the state um, claimed, you know, the rhetorical space that the state claimed um, to, um, you know, as an outward perspective on what Kentucky agriculture means. Um, And so um, looking at it, it became clear as I went through the newsletter that there was a, a shifting attention to um, first a shifting way, a shift in the way that the attention was paid to tobacco, and then finally a shift away from tobacco at all. Um, and so I became really interested. That became um, a central part of of the book, of my research, and of the book was this um, rhetorical analysis of this shift from um, this very self evident crop, this crop that was part of life and it was an accepted part of life, um, to a much more self-conscious um, crop that became eventually um, really relabeled as heritage and therefore in the past. 
Um, right. Even though it's not really in the in the past, which is another thing you, you cover in the book, isn't it? it yes. And, and certainly, um, undeniably, tobacco production has um, declined massively and continued mm-hmm. to, to decline, mm-hmm. certainly since I um, since this my research, obviously. Um, but um, the way in which the um, sort of rhetorical decline was happening didn't align neatly with numbers. Right. And um, so I was asked you know, or uh, people would comment over and over when I was in Kentucky and they'd hear that I was doing tobacco field work, they'd say, oh, you know, there used to be so much tobacco raised and now it's all gone. Um, And so there was this really pervasive, um, again, this is one of those assumptions that I had come into the research with was like, I'm going to document their last crop, you know, and Mm -hmm. that was, that's not at all what was happening for thousands of farmers. Um, And so, um, so that chapter or that, that middle section of the book really looks at the shifting meanings, um, you know, from tobacco as the crop that we raise and the crop that, um, you know, we depend on for our livelihood um, to, you know, a stigmatized crop and, and, um, you know, one in which people are less and less aware that it even exists. Um, And I think, one of the statistics that um, I'm sure I say in the book at some point that really demonstrate it demonstrates that um, major shift is that in 1959, um, tobacco was grown on 80% of the farms in Kentucky. And by 2007, it had dropped to 10%. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah. And so, and the, the actual amount is not statistically sort of um, equivalent to that, but in terms of the, the people raising it, right, um, the, the decrease um, is immense. But I think the back to that 80% in 1959 um, demonstrates, you know, how much it, um, you know, as people still tell me, um, how it was, it was part of life, right? It's a central aspect of life and this idea of the 13-month crop, um, you know, this, this ever-present um, aspect of farm life in Kentucky. So this uh, this section has um, two chapters. One is called Tobacco's Move from Self-Evident to Self-Conscious Tradition. And the second is called Tobacco Under Attack. And then Hello Heritage is the subtitle. And the last p- part that you've got various images from the uh, newsletter in these chapters. And the last one in the uh, in the chapter four, the first of the two chapters, is Burley Tobacco Centennial Year, 1964, which coincides with the um, this uh, Surgeon General's report on the health hazards of tobacco. And then we move to tobacco under attack. How quickly does the uh, representation of tobacco in the newsletter change? Really um, very slowly and subtly, um, although that one's that – I'm glad you point out that 1964 um, – um, newsletter because it's not at all subtle because that was it was it was January when the um, um, the Surgeon General's report had come out that we met that we talked about earlier um, and and in beginning in February um, that uh, tag at the bottom of sometimes every page of the newsletter sometimes just the front page um, celebrating the centennial year um, which really is a longer story about um, how the how the burley plant um, sort of um, became created through other um, from a, a different type, but um, so that um, 
that centennial year was really a talking back to the Surgeon General's report that had happened that January. Mm, okay, so it's quite. And that was your, what was your question? I'm sorry. I was, I I was curious as to how quickly the 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 rhetoric changed. So it it was this very kind of like um, promoted as both a self evident and self conscious tradition over the years, but then you you describe how it becomes erased in in the pages and on the walls of the um, Kentucky Department of Agriculture and in the pages of their newsletter. How how did you see that process evolving? Yes, it, um, and I think some of the images that I included um, demonstrate, for instance, the ways in which um, the label of tobacco as tradition to tobacco as heritage. Um, I talk in part about how that that shift, um, you know, we sort of um, rhetorically use heritage to um, reflect when something is has become much more self-conscious, when we're more aware of it um, because of some sort of, sort of threat. Um, and so the movement from the 40s and 50s to tobacco, from, from tradition to heritage as part of the shift that happened gradually. Um, and so, and then by, um, you know, I talk about um, as um, sort of in through the uh, 70s, especially um, this, this emphasis on, on tobacco as heritage um, was, could be, was very evident in the newsletter um, as it shifted to something that, you know, was um, needed to be defended, you know, so there's this, um, that chapter, as you said, is called Tobacco Under Attack, as it began to be understood as being under attack. And the, um, you know, I talk about the ways in which the the Department of Ag, as the, you know, spokesperson, um, spokespeople for Kentucky agriculture, were, were absolutely very tied up in the rhetoric of the industry itself. And, and we all know, um, you know, famously um, how um, we know much more today about the uh, the tobacco industry and the ways in which um, they, you know, all of their deceptive practices and all of the, the, um, the ways in which they worked to keep the, um, the cancer causing and other risks of tobacco sort of under under wraps for for many years so now then we can move on to part three which is uh titled raising burley tobacco in a new century and it's here that you're really combining your field work with with um this analysis of rhetoric and, and you're looking about at what it means to be a tobacco farmer in the modern you don't say modern now do you but in recent years and how and how it, this has become a, a stigmatized identity. And I think you've got a quote from uh, somebody who raised tobacco with her family, um, her husband and his family. Her name's Kathleen Bond. And she says, when we got married and raised tobacco, it was a good, honest way to make a living. Um, and at the time we got out and you, sub, you put in square brackets, that was in 2003. If you raised tobacco, you were dirt, you know, you were, you were contributing to cancer. And so... And then you go on to detail what it meant to be a tobacco man, particularly because, as you say, it is very gendered, and and how that has been, um, how that has changed, and how it's affected the people who are or were tobacco men, and it's it's very poignant. Um, so, so I I should stop summarizing this part. No, you're doing <laughs> a beautiful job. <laughs> in fact, ask you tell me about this this fascinating final section because I just think it's wonderful. It's so um, thought provoking. Well, thank you, and thank you for um, 
I'm glad that the structure of the book came clear. So <laughs> the first section is very much, you know, my um, an account of my field work and what farmers taught me. The second section um, is stepping back and looking at the larger um, rhetorical picture of, of um, tobacco and how it changed. And then, yes, then the third section, I'm trying to bring those together. Um, and I think, as I said early on, um, it, when we started out today, um, I really thought when I started this research that um, the, the tobacco industry was very separate from, um, you know, and, and from what I was interested in and so forth. But when people like Kathleen Bond started um, expressing um, the kinds of things um, that, you know, is in the quote that you um, just read, um, it really made me pay attention to the fact that as tobacco changed, um, that you know, really resonated in the lives of people who are raising tobacco. Um, the idea that, um, you know, as we became more and more aware, obviously, of the effects of tobacco use um, that had direct impact and led to, you know, this idea of, as Irving Goffman called it, a spoiled identity, right? A stigmatized, it became a stigmatized crop and those who raised it, um, even within Kentucky, the second largest tobacco state, um, you know, became sort of a, a stigmatized category of people. What I was one of the things I was really surprised by is that you detailed this study which shows what about people's attitudes to those involved in the tobacco industry, and I would kind of expected people to have been angry with the huge corporations that had been shown to have deliberately deceived um, uh, potential buyers. But there was also an awful lot of um, uh, antagonism towards the farmers themselves. They're cer certainly not divorced from this this sense of, of um, feeling of having that uh, buyers can't trust people involved in the industry. Yes, absolutely. And that was um – that became clear partly through, um, again, that middle section looking at the um, Department of Ag newsletters, but also through, um, you know, sort of at looking at, I also tracked news coverage over um, decades as well, you know, went back to old news coverage and so forth. So it became really clear that the tobacco industry did a really good job of sort of bringing tobacco farmers under their wing in terms of public um, public, you know, sort of the management of, of their uh, public persona so that they successfully aligned farmers with the industry in ways that as the industry then um, began to be understood as the um, incredibly um, persuasive and you know, evil industry that it is, um, farmers were sort of taken along with the industry in that sense. Um, there's a lot more work, I think, you know, that could be done on this, but it's um, at some point um, I, I briefly sort of contrast that with coal and the coal industry, you know, Kentucky's other um, massive industry and the ways in which um, the, the different histories of those industries made it such that we have um, some empathy toward coal miners in ways that we haven't had toward tobacco farmers, right? So we've got these two massive um, industries that have their, um, their, violent histories in both cases and, and um, polluting histories and health damaging um, histories and so forth. Um, and yet the tobacco industry successfully sort of enclosed farmers in the industry in a way that, um, you know, makes us 
even here in Kentucky, makes people see tobacco farmers as part of the problem as opposed to, um, you know, yet another victim of the industry. And not that farmers anyway, tobacco farmers would ever want to be classified as victims. So, but, you know, that there's a, a way in which they're sort of enclosed in the blame um, in ways that we don't see coal miners in quite the same way, or we didn't. I think that that may be changing. I was curious about that because maybe th- I think maybe people involved in the fracking industry um, or or the mountaintop removal when when it gets to that stage. I think there might be. I was wondering if there were there were, were was more kind of spoiling of identity going on there than in the past. I, I'm not going to claim to be qualified to talk about that, but I think you're absolutely right that it's it's become much much more complicated. Um, mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. so it is, but it is interesting to sort of think about um, the histories of those two industries and how, right. and, and you know, the roles of those who are the workers and those are who, and this is simplistic and yet not right, like where the power is. Right. Um, and so yes, in the case of um, tobacco. The tobacco industry, they did a really good job. Um, and again, this is um, back to that middle section of the book. The, the Department of Ag was absolutely complicit in this way in which farmers were wrapped in in the industry and presented you know, as um, central, which they were obviously central to the industry, but um, in ways that um, you know, made people ask questions that I talk about in the book and, and in articles as well of, you know, why don't they just raise something else? You know, why right. um, sort of blame? So, yeah, I wanted to get into that a little bit because the, the two chapters in this section, uh, uh, one is called uh, titled, this is chapter six, now is the good old days, burly tobacco production and nostalgia. And then chapter seven is why can't they just grow something else? The challenges of replacing burly tobacco. So why is there this particular nostalgia? What does it mean to be a tobacco man? And why can't they just grow something else? <laughs> Do we Some have another hour? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, as you're, you know, I think the process of field work is sort of, you know, listening and sort of, uh, and I, as I stress with my students, the transcription process is so important because you hear it in new ways. Um, but um, listening to um, what you know, what you the, the sort of patterns of what you're hearing, and um, the ways in which, again, sort of reevaluating our assumptions throughout all of the all of it. Um, and so, tobacco farmers really, I think, farmers in general, I think. Um, sort of nationwide, there's this sort of stereotype of farmers as resistant, as um, conservative, and I don't just mean politically, but, um, you know, resistant to change and so forth. Um, and this idea, again, that I really certainly started out with in doing this research that, um, that, that, um, that you know, they were always looking back at better days and, and so forth. And so what particularly um, that uh, first chapter in the third part, chapter six is about is, is the ways in which in fact, um, when what, what farmers taught me is that when they see a change that is going to make their work more efficient, um, you know, a combination of saving time, but also not sort of, um, you know, being detrimental to the crop and so forth. There's a, again, this sort of confluence of, of um, aspects of what efficiency means, but um, you know the, the, that quote "now is the good old days," which again um, was Martin Henson, one of my primary um, farmer teachers. Um, you know this understanding that 
when when changes have come that they've seen as beneficial, that have been you know um, efficient and so forth, um, they embrace those changes, and in some cases they even led those changes. Um, so we talked, for instance, earlier about um, the move from tying tobacco in those pretty hands, that bundle, um, to um, you know. Um, packaging it in different ways, um, and there are a couple of different ways that were tried. But um, there are stories about farmers who, because again, this is well, it's more complex than I have time for. But um, the the packaging in hands um, was the only form that that farmers were allowed to to um, to sell it in, and so packaging it in bales, which they later did. Um, sort of slowly started to happen and farmers would drive hours and hours to somewhere where they could sell it in bales as they figured out how to make that work and how it would um, sort of, you know, make, make their work more efficient, not easier, but more efficient. Um, and, but there was this rhetoric that I certainly bought into of um, that farmers were resistant to moving from hands to bales. When in fact, what I learned is that um, now is the good old days really um, symbolizes the ways in which when changes were seen to, to work in ways that benefited them, um, they were perfectly willing to embrace them. Right, right. And you, you stressed this several times over. So I, 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 I'm guessing you're pushing back against quite a strong uh, message that is received um that that people these people are not embracing change but that does bring us to this this final chapter of why can't they just grow something else and and i think this is as you detailed there's this thing about being a tobacco man and it does tend to be a, a man um as opposed to tobacco men and women as somebody else puts it um but it's this this relationship with the crop which um involves a performance of particular skills a knowledge of an aesthetic system and also, this man is highly, res this person who has this knowledge and performs these skills is highly respected in the community. And, and um, moving on to bell peppers seems to be the <laughs> most common replacement crop. Doesn't seem to work out. So why doesn't it work out? Is it because the knowledge and the performance of skills, the, the knowledge to create good bell peppers isn't isn't there or it's just it's I think as I really try to describe in this chapter is is again it's a confluence of both tangible and intangibles so you know to to move your farming operation from tobacco to bell peppers um you have to learn um what makes a good bell pepper and all of the steps in creating that you have to switch up your equipment and your your all your inputs into the land you have to create a market you know there's so there are all these um, tangible and intangible, um, well, those are the more tangible, right? The, the ways in which shifting, um, there are tangible aspects to it. Um, and, and bell peppers are the classic example from the 1980s and 90s um, where these, um, the pepper market, um, farmers were basically, um, you know, here, buy these pepper plants and then we'll come back and buy them from you. So say these pepper companies. Um, and then, they wouldn't come back and buy them. And so tobacco farmers were out all kinds of, of money and other outputs um, and, and left with rotting bell peppers. Um, and there were other, lots of other sort of trendy crops that that happened with, but bell, bell peppers became like the classic example. Um, and, but one of the many 
things that that points out about tobacco is that um, you, you know, again, that 13 month cycle, um, you, once you've got tobacco curing in the barn, it can sit there a really long time. I mean, I've, um, wouldn't quote particular farmers, but I've heard stories about farmers who didn't like their price. So they waited a whole nother, you know, to the next year um, to, to try to get a better price. Um, so, you know, it can sit there um, and bell peppers just rot and turn to mush. Right. And so um, that's sort of one really tangible uh, way in which, you know, it's just shifting to another crop. Um, there are a few crops that you could, you know, um, keep in your barn until the market it improves, right? Most most things are perishable. Absolutely, yes. And also, um, you know, you, you've got all these this, these skills and knowledge and, uh, that has been built up over generations and then trying to switch it immediately to something else that is is kind of new to you and, you, and, and the market's still kind of fluctuating very much. I mean, that's so much change to have to embrace, not to mention how it looks on the landscape or how it affects the, your working day. I mean, I've just switched to a new computer and that's been very traumatic. <laughs> and that's just a computer. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so unique about tobacco is what I just described in terms of it not being so perishable. Um, and so first off, second off, um, since the you know beginnings of the tobacco program in the 1930s, there has been a market that's waiting. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to shop around to try and sell your tobacco. Uh, I mean, it's more complicated than that now, obviously, and always was. But in terms of which warehouse you went to and so forth, but you knew you had a market. Um, and so one of the one of the many gendered aspects of um, of, of all of what this book is about is the ways in which. Um, that on farms where um, women were heavily involved, those um, I found that those are the farms that um, the, the big, the popular word is diversification. Um, so the, those are the farms on which more diversification was um, was happening and is happening um, is because of women's roles in um, helping to create markets and helping to, to do the marketing because um, tobacco farmers didn't have to do any marketing. They raised a good crop. Um, and they brought right. it to the warehouse and it was auctioned. Um, and so asking farmers to raise something else, which is the, the sort of the rhetorical refrain um, in the late 90s and 2000s was, you know, why don't they just raise something else? Well, there are many, many, many reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But for one, um, you know, it's not just raising a different crop. It's an entirely different uh, system. Um, and so in, in again, on farms where women were involved um, or are involved, um, even if farmers continued, and this goes back to that story I started with in, in 2000 with the woman at the, the Women in Agriculture Conference, um, her husband was going to keep raising it, but she wanted to learn about other crops that, that could be raised as well. So, um, Farrah, we're running out of time. We've, I've already taken up an hour of your, t- your time. Um, and so I should wind up soon. Is there anything you want to say about the book that I haven't given you the chance to say? I should have something ready to say about why it's important that you read this book. Um, hopefully we've, we've... Well, I hope we've convinced everybody that they should read it. I think it's a wonderful book. And it is the winner of the Whalen Hand Prize from the American Folklore Society. Um, so it's an award-winning book. Um, um, so before I let you go, though, can you tell me um, what you're working on now in amongst all your 
many duties as professor and uh, editor-in-chief of the Journal of American Folklore and so on and so forth? Well, there are um, a few things, but the one I think um, that's most most pertinent here is that um, as I was doing all of the tobacco research and writing about tobacco and so forth, um, that first conversation that I um, have talked about with the the, the woman in around 2000 at the Women in Agriculture Conference um, stayed with me, um, not just in the sense that I was sort of viewing all of my research with a gendered lens, um, but I've also remained really interested in what women farmers are up to in Kentucky. And so um, over the last several years, I've been um, conducting interviews with women farmers, um, particularly women who are members of the statewide organization who um, sponsored that conference that year um, and continue to do so called Kentucky Women in Agriculture. Um, and so I've been um, in the process of documenting um, the um, sort of stories of women who are part of that organization or who are involved in other ways. Um, at this point, it's a, a I've created an archival collection um, here at Western Kentucky University. Um, and so it's sort of been really about um, creating the collection for the organization um, and documenting their um, what they have to, to tell us about Kentucky agriculture from women's perspectives. And so that'll be, um, I've not done a lot of writing about that yet, but that'll be a piece um, sort of that will come next. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, well, listen, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the New Books in Folklore podcast and talking to us about Burley, Kentucky tobacco in a new century. And I will let you get on with your day. I just want to say thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Rachel. <laughs>